So we've been looking at this series called Upside Down. And in this series, we've been looking at this idea of the kingdom of God and the fact that the kingdom of God is so different. It's completely different, the, the, what it's based on, the truths, the values, the, the, the facts of the kingdom are completely different to what we uh, think is the truth of life. Uh, and we've seen over the last couple of weeks how uh, Jesus calls us to live as disciples in this, uh, in this stage where we are now, where, we, where we've seen Christ come and where we're uh, ready uh, and uh, living in the midst of the kingdom of God, but in this sinful world. And we're grappling with what does forgiveness mean? Where what, uh, what does God value versus what do we value? Is my thinking and my living in alignment with how God would have me live? Do you know that Jesus um, uses this term or this phrase, uh, the kingdom of God or, or kingdom, 126 times throughout the Gospels? So this is a big thing that we are intended to grapple, to, to seek, to understand. Um, and, and this morning, I want to uh, step into another part of this series. And, and I encourage you to open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 10. Because in Mark chapter 10, we see this incredible encounter that Jesus has in verse 17 uh, with a man who comes to him. Now, the Gospels are full of these moments. But there is some incredible truths here that tell us about what God values, that they tell us about wealth. They speak to us about eternal life. And so look out for those things as we read. And so Mark chapter 10, verse 17 says this, As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and your mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. This story actually presents something quite differently, uh, different to what we see often in the Gospels. You see, when we see of these moments where people come to Christ and particularly fall down in front of him, the kinds of people that we're reading about is those that are in need. We read of the, the blind beggars. We read of the lepers. We read of the widows or those who are poor and destitute who come and throw themselves at Jesus' feet. Those people who have encountered the bottom of life and they have realized that they need something else. 
It is not common then that we actually see, and there's a few instances throughout the Gospels where we see quite a different person come to Jesus. And that's what we read of this morning because this person who comes to him is not someone who appears to be needy. It's not someone who is a beggar or is blind or has some kind of physical ailment. In fact, the person who comes to Jesus is rich and young and the Gospel of Luke tells us a ruler. And I think it's actually interesting to note that, and we're going to unpack this as we go this morning, but these three characteristics, I'll say to you, are hugely valued in our society. They're hugely valued. Many people spend a lot of effort and a lot of time seeking to become rich. Their whole life is built around this idea of if I could just accumulate a bit more, if I could just have a slightly um, bigger house, if I could just have a better holiday or a better car or, 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 or whatever it is. And none of those things are inherently wrong, and we're going to see that this morning. But people build their lives around these things in today's society. The other thing that we value is being powerful. Many people seek out opportunities to be in um, areas of influence and power and, and be able to call the shots. And again, there is nothing inherently wrong with that. If you open a magazine, um, actually, I, I don't know if people read magazines anymore, but if you do, if you open a magazine or if you scroll through your social media feed, you will see images of young people, of youth, of beauty, and people spend fortunes trying to be young. It is kind of like the, the idolized thing in our society that if only I can be young and rich and powerful, it's like I would have it all together. And you see, Jewish society was actually not much different to our society. To be a Jew who was a person of substance, who was a person of influence and a person of wealth was seen as a blessing from God. I think often we think that this idea of a prosperity doctrine, you might have heard that, where some churches will teach you that if you become a Christian, then God will make you wealthy. He'll give you lots of money. He'll give you lots of stuff. We think that's a modern creation. But the Jews actually believed that wealth and status were these visible signs of God's blessing. So if you were poor, God wasn't blessing you. If you were wealthy, then you were obviously, you'd done something right because you were blessed who seemingly has it all together, he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet. The passage tells us that he falls onto his knees and he says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I wonder if the disciples were staring on thinking this is fantastic. We have got the ideal disciple that has come now. We were just kind of fishermen. We were, we were people, uh, most of the disciples, not, maybe not of significant wealth. But here, Jesus is now attracting kind of the, the important people. He's attracting those with wealth. And there is something, I think, um, uh, important to note. There are some really good attributes about this man who comes. Because as we um, unpack it, it's often easy to be, be, be critical of him. To, to think, oh, you know, what, what a vain individual he was. But I would say that there are some things he is doing that we should actually aspire to. And the first thing is that he is seeking something really important. Many, many people in our society do not think about what comes after death until they're facing death. It's often not until they're, they're dealing with the reality of what might come once they die that they actually start to think about God or they start to think about eternal life. And yet this rich young ruler in the prime years of his life 
He's seeking to know. He's seeking to understand. Uh, he's seeking to, to be assured that he has access, that he has done what is needed to be done to get into uh, eternal life, to, to be in heaven. The second thing that I think is that he obviously has some wisdom because he could be seeking that perhaps in a lot of places. And in our society, people seek it in all kinds of places. They seek that, that reassurance, but he comes and he comes to Jesus. He's obviously seen something in Jesus. He's heard his teachings. He's heard of his fame. And he comes to Jesus and he seeks the answer to his question straight from Jesus. And Jesus' response is interesting because he says to the man in verse 18, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. And I'd say to you, he's not, uh, Jesus isn't being tongue-in-cheek. He's not being a bit sarcastic. You know, you might have said, oh, that's perfect. And the really holy person next to you said, only God is perfect. We use those kinds of words, but Jesus is not doing that. He's not having some kind of false holiness. He's actually challenging the man's language because in the Jewish tradition, this word good was really significant. We use good for all kinds of things. We say, oh, you know, it was a good meal or um, it's so good that you did that or whatever. But in the Jewish custom, good was not intended to be used indiscriminately. In fact, it was a word full of meaning. And knowing the conversation that was to come, Jesus wants to set the bar on what is good, what is good. And so he says to the man, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. You see, he's pointing the man directly to the one who is this ultimate good. And Jesus isn't saying, I'm not good. He's just challenging the man to think about the words he's using. Because the next part is important. And what the man says is actually really significant. And I wonder if you saw it. The man's question to Jesus is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He, does, he doesn't say, what must I do to get eternal life? What must I do to be accepted into eternal life? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, again, the Jews believed way back from the book of Deuteronomy, they, they pulled some of the verses from there and they believed that it was a Jewish right, that they would inherit, that a false setting was that they would inherit eternal life unless they disqualified themselves through sin. So unless they did the wrong thing, their starting point was eternal life that if they ticked the boxes, if they were good enough, that God would accept them uh, into, into heaven, into eternal life. And so Jesus, using the man's measure, the measure that the man has set up, he uses that and he says to the man, but to answer your question in verse 19, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and your mother. And see the man's response here. He says, teacher, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. It's interesting to know what commandments Jesus points to because he doesn't point to all of them. He just points to these select few. And all of the ones that he points to revolve around this idea of moral goodness, of moral goodness. The man is saying, my measure is that I have been good enough. I have done enough good things. And the man replies to Jesus and says, I have kept all those since I was young. So this man is genuinely, in a human sense, good. He's actually a good individual. People would look at him. The disciples might look at him and say, not only is he powerful, 
Not only is he wealthy, not only is he young, but he is actually good. He is an upstanding person. By our measure, he is good. And I wonder if maybe you've used that standard yourself. When you're thinking about whether or not you're a good person or not, often we use these measures. We say, well, I'm a good person because I'm kind to other people. I uh, look after my parents or I honour other people. I go to church. I give money to charity. I try not to lie. I, you know, I'm, I'm truthful and I'm honest and I try to have integrity. Maybe you've even compared yourself to others. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't lie like this other person. Or I'm, I am I'm much, much nicer and kinder than so-and-so. It's very easy for us to see this bar of our own righteousness as being what God is seeking, as being how we also inherit eternal life. And verse 21 says this. It says that Jesus, uh, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. I want you to picture this. There's a crowd, and there was always crowds wherever Jesus went, unless he withdrew and retreated from the crowds, which he did at times. But there were always crowds. But in the midst of this crowd, the passage tells us that Jesus looks at this man. And he's not just looking because the Greek um, phrase here could be paraphrased to say that Jesus fixed his gaze or that Jesus looked intently into the man's soul. So this man has Jesus' full attention and it tells us that when Jesus did that he loves him he loves him he deeply loves this man he doesn't he looks past the self-righteousness that the man has he looks past all of the errors this fact that this man thinks that he's not sinful but inherently he absolutely is that there's no way he necessarily could have kept all of those things as a as a two-year-old I imagine this man didn't always honor his mother and his father and if he did I wish he was my child but there is, there is, Jesus looks past all of that, his self-assuredness, his self-righteousness, and he loves him. And he doesn't speak in judgment. Instead, he points directly to the heart of the man's problem, which was the man's heart. And he says here in verse 21, there is still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And it tells us the man's response. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. And Jesus says to the man, go sell everything. Go sell everything you have and give your money to the poor because if you do that, the treasure that is awaiting you is so much greater. It is so much grander. It is of, it is of so much more worth that I encourage you to go sell everything and come and follow me. And that phrase is so significant, and I want you to hear this this morning. It is a phrase that we've been talking about over and over again, and it's the, the essence of this passage. Jesus says to the man, come and follow me. Literally, sell everything you have, and literally, come and follow me on these ro roads, over these mountains, as we walk and as we talk. Come and learn from me. Be close to me. Let my life shape your life. Come and be my disciple. And Jesus asks him to do what we discover is the one thing that the man will not do. And that is to go and to sell everything. You see, the man has acquired a lot of stuff. He's acquired a lot of wealth. And that has become the focus of his life. You see, he wants Jesus, but he wants Jesus after he's got all of his stuff. He wants all of his stuff more than he wants Jesus because he makes a decision. 
It tells us that the man goes away anguished. He goes away downcast. He goes away upset. And he shows this as he leaves. And then Jesus turns and speaks to his disciples. And this confuses lots of us. And I want to unpack it with you. Jesus says to them, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This is verse 23. And they're amazed by this. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And we see some profound truths of the kingdom here, don't we? We see Jesus tell us there are some basic truths. The basic foundation of the kingdom is reflected in some of these words. And I'd say to you this morning that there are two things that the man has been pursuing. The first of them, which we've started to unpack, is the man's wealth and it's his possessions. And Jesus says something radical to him. Because remember, this is part of the reason why the disciples were so astounded that they were so amazed was because they saw his wealth as God's blessing. They saw his wealth as God's favor. And Jesus says to him, your wealth, your position is not driving you closer to God. It is actually driving you away from God. Your wealth and your power isn't a ticket to God in fact, or a ticket to eternal life actually a mountain. It is actually a hurdle. It's actually a wall that is in your way. And I want you to hear this morning that there is nothing inherently wrong or bad with wealth. And that is not what Jesus is saying here. I've heard many people take this away. Um, I've heard of one person in particular who actually took verses like this away and sold everything they had. and, and, And now they have none of that stuff. But that is actually not what Jesus is saying to you and to me. He's not saying that. And I'd say to you this morning, that it's very easy for us to take verses like this and look at other Christians who might have more than we have and say, I'm glad I don't have what they have because I'm closer to God. I'm glad I don't have what they have because they are rich and they're obviously hypocritical. Because if they were a good Christian, they would go and sell everything and give their money to the poor. But that's not what is being said here. The principle, I hope, is clear this morning. And that principle is that Jesus is saying to the young man and he's saying to you and me that we are to break off from anything, anything that gets in the way of our discipleship. We are to break off from anything that is standing in the way of us pursuing Jesus. And for some of us, that is our wealth. And Jesus speaks to that in Matthew 6, where he says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and you will love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And I'd say in our Western society that surrounds us with stuff that says being wealthy, having lots of stuff is is the sign that you've made it. I think wealth is an issue for lots of us, but it is not the only issue. Because I've seen plenty of Christians who are, who are well off that are able to use that money to bless their family, to bless their church, to bless their community. They're able to use that money. They're not owned by it. They do not make their decisions in life based on the things that they have. Rather, the things that they have serve the decisions that they're making. And that's the truth for all of us. We are in an affluent society and we have to watch out for this. I know plenty of Christians who, who will put the pursuit of wealth or who'll put money ahead of just about everything because it is so easy to do. And Jesus is warning us of that. But for some of us, it's not money. And particularly if you're sitting here this morning thinking, that's not the problem for me. I'm certainly, I'm certainly not ticking those boxes of being wealthy and, and rich or anything like that. For some of us, it is 
that our jobs, it is uh, relationships, it can even be our hobbies, are actually in the way of us pursuing Christ. They're actually in the way of our discipleship. And that is exactly what Jesus is pointing to. The second thing that the man is in pursuit of is his own righteousness. His own righteousness. You see, he has kept the law. Jesus says to him the command, some of the commandments, and the man says, yes, I've kept them. I've strived as hard to be as good as I can and righteous as I can in my own strength. And, but you'll note that he's discovered something. And I want you to discover this too this morning, if you haven't already, that his own righteousness, doing the right thing in a hope that that will earn God's favor, that that will make him good enough to, to have eternal life, is completely unsatisfying. You see, because if it was satisfying, if power and wealth, if being young, and also then also being able to say, I have kept all those, those things in my own strength, was satisfying enough, this man would have no reason to come and throw himself on his knees in front of Jesus and say, teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? You see, over in, in Luke's gospel, he actually uses this phrase, what else do I still lack? What else do I still lack? You see, the man knew that there was something missing. You see, he'd done all the stuff to tick all the boxes and he was still unsatisfied. And that's the radical focus of Jesus' conversation with him, isn't it? And that is the radical truth of the kingdom is that your striving can't possibly be good enough to earn eternal life. Your striving, your self-righteousness, the, the boxes that you've ticked are actually not good enough to earn eternal life. Jesus uses this analogy. He talks about a camel through the eye of a needle. I remember hearing this preached many, many years ago. And the person said, oh, there was actually this rock structure around in the region where Jesus was speaking, this path that went through rocks. And it was like really, really narrow. And it looked a bit like a needle. You might've heard this same analogy used. And they explained that what they had to do was was really hard for a camel to get through there. So they had to take all the packages off and kind of make the camel kind of squeeze down. And if they just got the angle right, that the camel could get through. And I, I remember hearing that preached, but it's completely not the right thing. It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is actually, and in the Greek, talking about the eye of an actual needle and the idea of it is, it is easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. He's saying it is impossible. And the reason he uses this, again, he's not just talking about wealth. He's using the example to the disciples and to the crowd that is listening that if it is, if it is impossible for the person you think is most blessed of God, if it is impossible for the person who you think has ticked all the boxes, has done all the right thing, if that person can't do it, what hope do you have? What hope do you have? Jesus is literally saying salvation in your own strength is impossible. Not that it's very hard. It is impossible. You see, your goodness will never be enough because your goodness will never be up to God's standard of what is good because God is good and God is perfect. When we look at the, the commandments that Jesus speaks to the man about, over in Matthew 22, when he's speaking, he's challenged by some of the religious leaders. They say to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus speaks of this passage that was so well known. In fact, the, the, Jew, the Jews would memorize it. And they would repeat it all, all the time, every day. And this passage was, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart 
all your soul and all your mind. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind. And I find it interesting that Jesus didn't mention this one on his checkbox list because he was, he was having this exchange with the man because the man never could have said, I've, I've done that. If we go back to the Ten Commandments, what is the first commandment is you have no other gods before me. And the man certainly wasn't ticking that box, was he? He's saying to the man, really, your striving isn't good enough. I want your heart. And that's why he says to him, go sell everything you have because that's what has your heart. That's what has the, your, your, your emotions. That's what has your focus. And again, I challenge you this morning, what is that for you? What has your heart? Because the reality of the kingdom is that Jesus calls us as disciples to pursue him, to pursue him, that there shouldn't be anything that gets in the way of that pursuit of Christ, of having your life shaped and your life transformed by him. Because our attempts to do it while also worshipping money or worshipping your career or worshipping um, relationships or hobbies or whatever it is will never, will never be good enough. And in fact, it will leave you feeling hollow. And I think many of us often fall into that trap, don't we? Because we're people of action. We like to be able to say we've done certain things. And so I want to challenge you this morning, just as we wrap up, Romans 3.23 says this, and this is a great verse if you've never seen this or you've never um, bookmarked it. Romans 3.23 says this very, very clearly. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Isn't that an encouraging passage? And I'm so grateful that that is something that's in your Bible. You can go away and read it and you can remind yourself of it, that we've all sinned. So we're all in the same boat here. You don't have to worry that someone sitting on your row this morning is more holy or more righteous then you are, unless it's your spouse, and just let them believe that that's the case. But you don't have to worry about that in church because every single one of us, I'm in that boat. Everyone who you saw up the front this morning is in that boat. All of you are in that boat. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. And yet, God in His grace, see this word, freely, not through your striving, not through your attempts to be good enough and to tick the boxes, not through your accumulation of stuff, but God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. And the passage tells us how that, how that happens through the death and resurrection of his son. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you have been trying to tick the boxes, if you have been trying to make yourself right with God, if you have been wondering, will this be enough to inherit eternal life? I can tell you that even if you're feeling good now, if you think it's done in your own striving, you will end up feeling empty and hollow still because you'll probably have the epiphany that the young man had that he, he, he isn't good enough, that he isn't enough to inherit eternal life. And so I want to give you an opportunity this morning that if you haven't done that before, you haven't done that before, you haven't come to Christ, and said to him, I accept the gift that you have given freely. I accept that I can't do it in my own strength. I'm going to give you a, an opportunity this morning to, um, to deal directly with God. 
And so why don't you close your eyes this morning and you can be confident that when you pray to God that He hears you. In fact, the Word promises that. And so I want to encourage you this morning, there's no secret formula, there's no perfect words, it's not trying to line up a prayer in the right order to make it stick or make it count. All you have to do is speak to God. And so I'd encourage you just in your own heart, in your own your own mind, just silently you can pray. All you need to do is you just confess that you're a sinner. You declare that you believe Jesus died and He rose again. You ask God to be the Lord of your life that He would guide you and that you would follow. And you can thank Him, knowing that when you pray that, you have the promise of eternal life. So I'll just give you a moment, and then I'll pray. God, we thank You for Your Son who You sent. We thank You that even though we strive and we try to be good enough and to be righteous and to to tick the boxes, that actually none of that matters in seeking you. Lord, that you call us to come to you in humility and to say, I can't do it, knowing that the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, washes us clean of our sin, that that sacrifice and that acceptance that he is Lord of our life makes us righteous in your eyes. It washes us clean of guilt that we can live then in freedom, not to tick the boxes, but rather to be transformed by by you, to see the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives, changing us, uh, enabling us to live in ways that we didn't think were possible, freeing us of things that are holding us back, of struggles and addictions, of of pride, of, of, of all the different sins that we struggle with, knowing that in you that those things can be conquered, but knowing first and and foremost, that as soon as we ask you to be Lord of our life, that you you accept us, that you receive us, and that we have this promise and this, this confident hope in you. And so, Lord, I pray this morning for anyone who prayed that prayer, Lord God, that you would seal that in their heart. Father, this would be a significant moment for them. Lord God, that they would pursue you Lord, and I pray for, the, for all of us here this morning, Lord God, whether it is wealth or whether it is power or whether it's our job or our, our um, hobbies or whatever it is, Lord God, that we have put in front of you. Lord God, that we would strip all of those things back and that we would pursue you. Lord God, that the stuff in our lives, we would not serve it, but rather, Lord God, it would serve you. Father, that we would be able to uh, just live for you in every moment, in every season. And Lord God, we just pray that there would not be an obstacle, there would not be a hurdle in our way. Lord God, particularly this morning, for those of us who do need to line up our wealth, Lord God, that we do need to reorder and reprioritize and and reconsider what we've been seeking. Lord God, that you would enable us to do that, to make those hard decisions. Father, that that would never be an obstacle for seeking you and for living in the way that you want us to live. And so, Father, we just pray your blessing upon us now. Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We pray that it would continue to challenge us this week, that we would live lives that are radically transformed and that reflect your likeness to this world. We pray this in your name.